To me, money is something that has a value, but that value has to then be determined by the market. Would you then say that money is like the blood of the socioeconomic organism? I'm not sure I ever thought of that really, but... It is called, what, what is money after all? How widely does it have to be used in order to be a money? And do are we talking about globally? Are we talking about within a country? Are we talking about within a state? What is money, right? Ultimately, money is a, a useful good. That's what money is, right? That's another definition of money. It's it's the ultimate instrument of optionality. It buys you any good or service in the marketplace. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them. As again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. The aspiring totalitarian impulse always seems to attack language and money, like these two critical media that we use to organize ourselves seem to be the first ones on the chopping block. When, uh, And I, again, I try to say it, it's an impulse, like it's something that lives in all human beings, I think. I don't try to single out individuals. Although there are people that are a little more given to that impulse than others. Um, I am trying to, I guess, get a holistic view of what's going on or what's common between these episodes. And um, I guess I'd like to try to rephrase what I said earlier, because I don't think there's political top down uh, you know, a group of people saying, Hey, let's inject wokeism and, you know, confuse and divide people. I think mm -hmm. here's the, the, the downstream path that I see. I think it's technology is upstream from economics. 
economics is upstream from culture culture is upstream from politics and so my theory about what's going on here and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this is the technological landscape has shifted so rapidly mm-hmm. uh, i mean i've experienced this just in my own life like, i was so resistant to social media when it first came out it felt mm. like self-promotion or self-aggrandizement and yeah it was just yeah. noisy and i'm like this yeah. is weird i don't want to be a part of it but now i've fully capitulated i'm like this is the new media paradigm it's not going anywhere it's mm-hmm. like, get on board or get left behind kind of thing and so that has obviously had ramifications on economics um and an- another thing there is the when we're and again this is part of the theory at the technology layer i think money is one of the most important technologies in the world we currently have a global implementation of fiat currency mm-hmm. so when we print money it's a regressive tax on the poor and middle class so it's actually widening the gap between rich and poor it's making the rich richer and the poor poorer and so if that tech is upstream from the economics you know fiat's the tech the economic situation is widening wealth gap the cultural consequences of that would be more divisiveness right and then i guess the you would see that reflected at least in the US in the the widening divide between red and blue. So I guess in a nutshell widening wealth disparity leads to widening political divide. I think in a in an unstable epoch when there is just a, a tremendous amount of uncertainty um especially when you're dealing with regimes that simply can't be trusted um that having options becomes vitally important. Um, and in a lot of instances, you know, moving, moving is something you'd like to be able to do, but being able to do that while keeping, you know, what, whatever resources you've been able to squirrel away intact, um, you know, it becomes all important. So, yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head because it's, I always say this, that in instances or circumstances of uncertainty, the best strategy is to maximize your optionality. You want as many options as possible because you don't know which way reality is going to move. It's uncertain. So you need as many options at your disposal as you could possibly have. That's what money is, right? That's another definition of money. It's it's the ultimate instrument of optionality. It buys you any good or service in the marketplace. And Bitcoin's like the most superior form of money we've ever had. So it's it really is the ultimate tool of optionality which lets you contend with uncertainty in the most effective way possible and and from your standpoint i mean obviously money with its primary function as a kind of medium of exchange and a store of value is that that is that enough for bitcoin to replace that function or do you need additional um applications for Bitcoin, um, for it to really catch on and to become uh, established, if it's not already, uh, but an established um, and meaningful part of the global economic system. You know, I think every money is definitely enough, right? If it was just gold 2.0, that's mm-hmm. gold to ten trillion dollar market, that would be pretty significant for Bitcoin. Um, but I don't think it will stop there. I th- think there's going to be, there already are applications being built 
on it, you know, protocols being built above Bitcoin, like the Lightning Network, mm-hmm. that make it much more functional as a medium of exchange, and that you can move it very quickly, very low fees, privately, etc. Um, all of those other applications and higher order protocols put additional demand on the base layer, so it's it's causing it to appreciate even more rapidly. Basically, as as those systems have more transaction volume. There's more demand for Bitcoin to fund the liquidity of those channels and whatnot. So I don't think it it doesn't necessarily need other applications to succeed. I mean, I guess Lightning Network, you could say, is pretty necessary if you want a usable medium of exchange. Um, but in current conditions, it's so useful just to be able to put your wealth in something that's semi-untouchable. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you can vote with your feet. You can go wherever you're treated best and you don't have to leave with nothing. Like most refugees across history have just left with nothing, right? Whatever clothes and a bag of whatever they can carry and that's it. Um, this is something much more substantial, right? It's just a just a piece of information that can contain really any amount of wealth you can put on it. So it's a yeah. really- Really big no, it's a radical it's a radical way to, to to state it yeah yeah the economy is not a machine it's it's a, a it's in a sense that they, they call it an organism back in the 19th century a, a lot of economists mm-hmm. and I think that is a, that is pretty good because it's it, it does live and it just does grow or or shrink in size and have different outcomes depending on all these different things right it's it's responding to a lot of different things but it has, sort of has a life of its own and and I think that the core task of an economist is really to try to figure out what is its nature, how does it actually work, and and our understanding of it. What, what can we do with that? How can we figure out how to in, in the in the longer term and on the on a sort of grander scale, how can we lift more people out of poverty? How can we make the world a better place for everyone? That's that's. Uh, that's just really the the core task, not not trying to shape certain things or or produce an exact outcome because that's just impossible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think the the author Taleb said he described it as confusing the cat for the washing machine. <laughs> that you think you can go in and just change a little pipe or something on the washing machine and repair it you know it's deterministic basically you can figure it out but you can't do that to the cat because the cat is is not a machine it's a complex system and it's so painfully obvious to me that the economy should be revered as the most complex system when we look at the individual human mind and we're we we think the human brain is the most complex thing in the universe yeah, when we describe the interlinking of all the human brains in the world via the pricing system, we somehow reduce that, mm-hmm. or the Keynesians reduce this to the washing machine and think they can just pull a lever and press a button. Um, could not be. I mean, there's nothing further from the truth, I guess, in my opinion. Um, the description as an organism, it's a very interesting one, uh, philosophically deep, and I've thought about it a bit myself. It kind of leads you to this other line of questioning is what is the, what is the line between living and non-living, which is another really tricky question to answer. But if we're taking that analogy um, for what it's worth, I guess, or on its face, would you then say that money is like the blood of the economic or socioeconomic organism? 
Whoa. Um, yeah, that's a, I'm not sure I ever thought of that really, but in, I mean, in a sense, I mean, money is super important, right? So in a, a money economy, which is a highly productive economy compared to the alternative barter, one side of every transaction is practically money. Right. So, I mean, we, when we talked about it before, about exchanges, well, I, I talked about my glass of water for for potato chips, but that's usually not what how people trade. It's not usually how we do things in the economy because we trade for money. We work, so we, we sell our labor, we sell our labor services, in a sense, to an employer or we have our own business. We get paid in money. And then we use that money to buy whatever it is we want. So we work as a means... And, and usually it's it's not a means that we like very much. We talk about the disutility of labor, but we get paid for it, so we're we're fine with it. And therefore we can attain ends because we go to different stores and we buy things and we pay our bills and and whatnot else. Um, so money is definitely core to to the, to the organism, and it, it helps with the allocation of resources and the uses of resources and all kinds of investments and entrepreneurship and everything too that it simply wouldn't be possible without the money so is it is it the, the blood or is it the nervous system well, I, i'm not sure what what is the better analogy but it's definitely very core if it works i should say i mean if it's if it's good money it, right if you screw it up then you screw up the whole economy yeah yeah um I, I would assume you mean free market determined money is typically good money. Yeah, yeah, that's that's typically good, good money. And I would say some some money that is, I mean, it's something that is backed, right? There's some something that is, is either backed by another value or something that people trust in itself and that you can't just create more at a whim, yes. and especially not one party. Because if you create more money, I mean, prices are expressed in terms of money but they're really just relative prices right between different goods yeah. um but but if you constantly undermine the purchasing power of money by creating more so you have more money uh, competing for the same number of goods which of course means you have price inflation mm -hmm. um then then it's not a good money it's not reliable because it doesn't really uh maintain its value uh you can't really save it like people could before with say gold coins or whatever which you could put in in your mattress and it retained its value. Mm -hmm. uh, you didn't lose everything just just because you used it had it in your mattress and you didn't use it. Uh, it was a form of savings. Um, and, and as long as <clears throat> as long as people in general can trust the money and the money actually is is valuable to everybody else and then it, it works well. Uh, of course, this is excludes pretty much everything that we call money today. All those uh, state currencies are unreliable to say the least that they're they're reliable means of indirect taxation for the governments but it, mm -hmm. there's really nothing else yeah well well said on that um and then a little further down i want to read this excerpt to you because i think it's very important that it's not just that money emerges naturally but it's also like a key or perhaps the key to really unlocking economic abundance and productivity. And so you wrote that money is therefore much more than a convenience. It is necessary for exchanges to take place and for the advanced specialized production processes we take for granted in the modern economy. 
Large-scale production, supply chains, and specialization are made possible because money uncouples our efforts as both buyers and sellers. Due to the uncoupling, we can also specialize in what we do well rather than produce only what we ourselves want to consume. Consequently, we can focus our production efforts on where we make the biggest difference, where we create the most value for society. Without money, we would not be nearly as productive. So in this organism or complex system or just this you know, vast network of interrelationships, basically, money accelerates the whole thing, right? It like juices the whole process and really gives us economic calculation so we can trade and negotiate faster. We can think more clearly about economic matters. We can engage in business planning, long-term production, trade. And it's all possible because we have this common language of economic numeracy called money, right? It's, um, and yeah. I guess it's not just the psychological effects. I guess I highlighted those, but there's also just the ability to hold cash balances, right? As a buffer against uncertainty. That's a huge uh, necessity when you're an entrepreneur, let's say, facing the, the uncertain all the time. Um, anyways, I'd love to hear your feedback on, on that passage. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I mean, you, you can't really, you can't really imagine what an economy would be like without money. I mean, it, it, yes, it facilitates all these different trades, but anyone starting a new business, I mean, if you're starting production of a, of a good, what, what, what is it that you have to think about? Well, okay. First, the, the good is it will it be invaluable enough for someone to buy this as a, at a price that makes it profitable for me? Mm. Well, then that means that you have to imagine how valuable would this be on people's personal terms. But how much money would they be willing to part with to get this sort of thing compared to everything else that they have to choose from? Right? How can I get place my whatever it is I'm producing so high on their ranking that they will part with money? And then my job is to figure out how can I produce this at a cost that is lower so I get something in between or at least I don't suffer a loss, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that means I have to, all these choices to make. Do I produce? Do I buy a big machine and produce a, a ton of these things or do I, have, do I rely on manual labor? Um, do I have one factory with lots of trucks or do I have many factories distributed they're closer to the customers. I mean, all of these different choices that you have to make, how can you make those unless you have money prices for all of those things, right? If you already have a market wage for drivers and you already have prices for the trucks and you already have prices for the land and the factories, then you can make comparisons and you can figure out, okay, which one would be the better choice here? Which one would would lower the cost and, and increase volume or whatever, you, whatever you're aiming for? But without prices, Without money, then you would say, okay, so either I have one big factory with takes lots of concrete and lots of workers, or I have several smaller factories which takes concrete and labor. And you have to compare in kind, and we can't really do that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't tell us anything at all. So it's just like you said, it, it, any any production really that is that is not for ourselves or people that we know basically personally. Anything that is, that is um, anonymous and, and large scale is completely impossible. We can't even we can't figure out how to put it together, how to structure that type of production. 
we can't figure out whether it's it's a good thing or a bad thing. And there's no way of guessing either because we don't have anything to compare different options. We don't have a unit. So money sort of releases this completely, just like in the section you read, because suddenly we don't have to produce for ourselves and we don't have to produce what we what we think that we would want if, if, in case we can't sell it. A lot of us produce things that we don't want at all. I mean, I, I produce a lot of uh, peer-reviewed papers. Well, I don't produce them for my own consumption. I produce them for others. And the same thing with my lectures uh, on campus. I hardly ever consume my own lectures. Mm. Right? They're not for me. Uh, and so if I couldn't sell them, then well, they would be worthless to me. But I think there's a market so I can sell them for, for money or at least I get paid to do this stuff. right? So I can focus on doing something that I'm really good at rather than something that would produce something that I would want. So I can be of, gra of greater service to mankind by focusing on where I I produce the best, right? Where I can produce as much uh, valued outcome as possible, whether or not I, I like it, because I can get paid in money, and then I can use that money to buy what someone else has produced, and that they're really good at producing, but they might not want it themselves. Mm -hmm. Right? So we can get the best and the and the the most productive out of each and every one of us, mm -hmm. and then then. And we can organize all these long, advanced, really complex production structures and make choices between different inputs and between outputs and, and production technologies and things like that because we can compare the cost in money. Were it not for money, we couldn't do any of this. Wow. It's, a, it's wild to think about it that way. Um yeah, I mean, almost like if it is an organism, the economy is pretty unintelligent without money, to say the least. I mean, I, almost that yeah. information is just not flowing without money. Um, yeah, really, really good points there. You mentioned that Gerard gives an account on of the origins of money, right? Right. As it, I guess, through a framework of of mimesis, perhaps acquisitive mimesis. Um, yeah. Could we just touch on that a little bit and yeah it's yeah a different book actually as well. it, it is called what, what is money after all so i, I suppose we'd be uh, i'd be robbing your listeners of a gerardian treat if we didn't touch upon that as a final topic um i'll give the really quick version and i'll do another shameless plug this would be in lecture seven to so the final lecture about about and it's not so much an invention of money that gerard is really interested in. he's not interested in painting as a you know, a genealogical, or sorry, sorry, uh, like a clear historical progression of different political economies. Um, he's really tr helping, a, trying to help us understand contemporary capitalism, but it does touch upon a, uh, money. So, so I'll, I'll get to that. Gerard traces a genealogy of capitalism to gift giving. So as you probably know, uh, the Smithian conception of the historical progression, right? First it was bartering, then it was money, then it was debt and loans and gifts. That's wrong, right? Graeber actually gives a pretty convincing argument here that it's actually flipped. First, it was gift giving. And then money was invented. And only in the absence of money for people who are used to money do we get bartering, like in prisoners of war camps. So, and this is quite a natural intuition that 
gift giving would be the dominant mode of existence in you know small tribalistic societies because after all when you're with your close friends you never say you know i'll do your spreadsheet if you walk my dog for two hours right you help your friend do short spreadsheets you help your friend walk their dogs now of course you also keep some kind of tally so if someone always keeps asking you you stop being friends with them mm-hmm. but the but i hope you get the intuition okay so it, it was it was a it was a gift giving uh, economy and Gerard thinks, thinks that there's uh, Gerard is highlighting two very interesting things about such an economy. First, such an economy where it appears to be material aid. In many cases, it was not about that at all, but it was about ego, right? It's, it's a topic we've talk, touched upon many times today. There's these stories of these great chiefs who throw lavish parties competing against who could give each other the best gift mm-hmm. and often squandering the very things that they aim to give purportedly for aid. It's kind of like modern philanthropy, right? Where, or some part of modern philanthropy, where it's less about the receiver than it is the giver. Mm-hmm. The second thing that Gerard uh, highlights is that, quite oddly, there usually are cultural prohibitions against rapid gift giving. So there usually needs to be a gap here, mm-hmm. right? And I think you know the intuition here is quite interesting as well. Where if I'm really good friends with you, then I probably don't have to Venmo you for the dinner. Mm-hmm. But if I'm only going to meet you one time, well, we better settle that account right then and there. Right. But the other thing is that Gerard thinks because these gifts, their value is not certain. They have to. It's so easy to misconstrue who's winning and who's losing out in the deal that if the gift giving is too rapid, it could incite violence. Hmm. And that's why there, there needs to be a gap between the gift and counter gift. So money kind of fixes this where money confirming the value and you're cutting off the relationship. So money for Gerard is a substance that allows people to exchange much more rapidly and exchange on a much more uh, increasing dimension of things. Mm. So modern day capitalism for Gerard keeps the, the, the intuition that what appears to be material exchange isn't material exchange at all, but it, uh, how it's different from gift giving that is that there's money as a medium of exchange there mm. that sort of atomizes people that cuts people off from relationships, but in doing so engenders much more rapid material exchange and and commerce. Now that's fascinating because the the intensity of exchange is proportional to how much wealth we create or or how productive we become. So that's really interesting that, um, I guess the gift economy was a low intensity exchange economy. So it's not capable. Right, right. Both in frequency as well as in terms of the, the goods exchanged. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's super fascinating. And then I wonder if things, this probably, Mimesis has to relate to the monetization of assets, I would imagine, too. Like some guys wearing gold, right, as a collectible. And then right, right, passing right. gold on to his son or wife as they get married as a, a means of wealth transfer across generations. It does. Please observe those families doing it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And this explains, for example, why gold is valued differently in different cultures, right? I I believe um, when the Europeans arrived, the the South Americans couldn't make sense of the degree that that, that their lust for gold and silver. Um, When you look at what currencies were being used um, throughout different uh, pagan societies, you'd be quite surprised. Some were using literally wheels huge wheels that you'd roll around as, as, as currencies. So yes, that, that's exactly right. And in cryptocurrencies is a you know, great example. You know, why is a dog coin worth, right. worth, worth so much? And so 
So there's, um, however, right, the fact that many cultures, if not most cultures, have converged on silver and gold as these precious things tells us it's not just mimesis, right? Yeah. Um, that, that, and, and this, again, goes back perhaps as a fitting place to end, because I know we're a bit up on time, because it, it's an isomorphism of physical and metaphysical desire, yeah. right? There are physical qualities of gold and silver that, that maybe make them interesting, but their value is clearly not just those physical qualities. It's this uh, additional social uh, aura that we've imbued upon them. Right. So fascinating to think about. But I like the distinction between metaphysical and physical because it those are the two domains we're kind of operating within, right? It's the Darwinian yeah. preservation and the physical domain, but then there's this metaphysical S symbolic, social, yes, yeah, meaning, participation, etc. Reminded of the Kissinger quote, all right, who controls the food supply controls the people, who controls the energy can control whole continents, who controls money can control the world. Um, yeah. I don't think it's any coincidence that we've seen massive disruptions in food and energy and a massive printing of money like this. When you can't uh, maybe observe the motivations directly, you know, we can just mm. observe the outcomes and infer the motivations. I think Carl Young said something like that. And, um, mm. you know, it's just that. It's not a coincidence. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res three-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code Bitcoin23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. I brought you on because I, I found you right by the time you started doing the, the Sailor series with Michael Sailor, right. and I found out you had a podcast called The What Is Money Show. So I figure it'd probably be a good idea to ask a guy that runs a podcast called The What Is Money Show, what is money? So how, how do you answer that question? Yeah, it's a really tough question, actually. Uh, I have a running document with, I think, over 50, five zero answers to that question at this point. And these are either answers that I have read about, I have come up with myself or guests have proposed on the show. And it's interesting, you know, it's kind of this philosophical question, right? The, the show is not, when people first hear about the show, they think we're really focused on money, finance, economics. And we are to a large extent, but we're also branching out into a lot of other topics you might not traditionally associate with money. And, there's a lot of ways I can answer this question. One that comes to mind now I heard recently that I really like is money is liquid power. Um, and now if you've seen the sailor series or you've seen the, the series I did with Jason Lowry, you'll probably have a good understanding of what I mean by that. Um, but I'd, I'd like to speak to the definition of power. Actually, we typically, I think the word is most often used in the sense of, 
political authority, someone having power or say so over the life of another person. But that, that's only one interpretation of the term power. There's this whole other domain that's extremely important, which is physical power, right? So I like to, to delineate political power and physical power. And physical power, I mean, there's a formula for it in physics. It's essentially joules moved per second, right? Energy moved over unit time. And that is exactly what we are trying to optimize for in the market process. We are trying to harness more physical power per unit of human effort. Um, that's that you can, it's almost the same thing as uh, describing productivity or wealth creation. We're just trying to accomplish greater results with less effort. So money has this interesting intermediate role where it is a representation of physical power in the sense that gold was rooted in, you had to expend energy to discover, mine, and refine gold. That expenditure of energy that was necessary to produce gold is what secured its supply from being counterfeited or inflated arbitrarily. So gold is rooted in physical power, but the possession of gold gives one great political power. Because now, if you know, this is the old Rothschild quote, he who has the gold makes the rules. So if I have the gold, I can then create, I can pay soldiers and lawyers and all of these other things to create uh, a society that, that I sort of run and tax and extract from. So there's this interesting ambivalence when I say money is liquid power and that it, it is both a technology that is rooted in physical power which constrains its supply, but it also affords its individual possessor or possessors great political power in the sense that, um, you know, the, basically one way to say this, the United States is the superpower in the world because we have the most gold, right? After World War II, we had the most gold in North America. So we intervened into World War II, declared ourselves victorious, and then we rewrote the global banking rules in Bre at Brettonwood, the Bretton Woods Conference, and declared ourselves uh, effectively the, the central bank of the world, right? The dollar would be pegged to gold. All of the currencies would be pegged to the dollar. And this gave the United States the exorbitant privilege, as the French called it, to export inflation and import goods and services. So um, anyways, that's one answer to the question. And I hope it's <laughs> kind of highlights some key points that we talk about on the show. I think you're, you're dead on. And I think it makes a very good uh, assertion of the, of the total to me, money is something that ha that has a value, but that value has to then be determined by the market. It has to be discovered across time. Right. It, and it's, it's what money has traditionally been, whatever humans have agreed within a given economy is money at that time. And over time, it seems that in general, the best form of money available to people at a time becomes the de facto standard, whether the government wants it or not, eventually that happens. And that's why I, at some point, expect to see a much broader adoption globally of, of Bitcoin. And yeah, I, so go ahead. People, to your point, people, and this is such a key insight that I hope more people absorb, people don't follow laws people follow incentives 
And when it comes to money, every individual has the incentive to hold the money that no other individual can print or debase or counterfeit or inflate. That is why we got gold. Individuals figuring that out across a long span of history. We figured gold is the hardest thing to print, debase, counterfeit, or inflate. So it became the premier store of value. And that's what Bitcoin has perfected, right? For the first time in human history, we have a monetary technology that decidedly cannot be printed, counterfeited, inflated. Um, and that, that makes a world of difference. It's as if the entire process of capitalism has been zeroing in on this innovation. We needed a sound money to really make capitalism work um, and to depoliticize de the economic process. To get, which is to say, get government out of your pockets. Yeah. <laughs> what we've been trying to do throughout all of human history and Bitcoin is a tool that makes theft very expensive and therefore makes government less relevant. The way I view this is like the ultimate honeypot, it seems like, that money is just, especially when it was centralized, we're on a gold standard and we centralize the custody in one place, that becomes an apparently irresistible honeypot for the state to resist uh, bending to its own advantage, whether that's uh, you know outright confiscation or cheap credit or whatever whatever it may be to monopolize the money ultimately. Um, how, how do you how do you view view that uh, in this sense? If the, the 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 state can engage in all sorts of exploitative acts, um, but ultimately, you know, money is a, a useful good. You think of what we want it for. We want to be able to have this, this good that we can, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the most liquid good that we can go, you know, spend and get whatever we want. Um, the state also wants that power. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go, you know, and uh, if you, if you tax, um, but you end up with just a bunch of wheat, well, then you're, you're in the, you're, you then need to have to go and, um, you know, find people who want to trade wheat for the resources that um, the state wants, or they have to like, you know, target their taxation to very specific uh, goods that they want. So obviously, you'd, you'd want to uh, exploit by getting your hands on the most liquid goods so that mm -hmm. then in turn the state has access to whatever it needs to um, continue continue its goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? We, we, the corruption of money, how it actually corrupts human action. Uh, they're very closely interlinked. And it does seem like this emergent economic phenomena we call money, right? The most liquid good I think as you were describing it earlier, the most marketable good. It just offers the highest ROI of coercion, I guess. Like if you can just monopolize the money and arrogate yourself the uh, exclusive privilege to counterfeit it or print it and prevent everyone else from doing so, that there, there's just the most bang for your buck, I guess. Um, and then, but... You know, the, on the ideological side, you obviously have to insulate that with something. And I think that's what we could argue Keynesianism is, right? This kind of false ideology or pseudoscience that's really just there to promote the counterfeiting of currency and, and its institutionalization in the central bank. So is it fair to say that propaganda is necessary to a support the existence of a fiat system or or perhaps it's the other way around a fiat system inevitably produces propaganda 
Um, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'd guess, uh, a little bit of both. Um, but yeah, um, you know, w- once again, I mean, this is not something that would arise in a natural free market. Um, you know, by definition, uh, or not, sorry, not by definition, but we just know, you know, theoretically, uh, from, from the works of Menger and so on, money is something that arises on the market naturally. Mises even says that, like, um, you know, it can only arise as a, a commodity money first. Mm-hmm. You can't just introduce um, banknotes as <laughs> the original money. Um, so in order to, uh, in order to get people to go along with that, because there, there are all these hidden costs underneath, um, that are, are being kind of, you know, papered over. And I, I use that as a pun, but as they're papered over, you have to be convincing people that, oh no, this is actually the way it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I, I think propaganda is sort of a, a necessary, um, function of that because you need to continually make people want something that they wouldn't naturally want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before this, I you know, I go I go into the the nature of like money substitutes and the monopolization of uh, substitutes. So basically, as things are more uh, as as mints are centralized, you start then introducing you know not just gold coins but banknotes. Um, that are, you know, certificates that represent a gold coin or some other, you know, amount of gold. And this also has, you know, great value. It makes it much more easy to transport, especially large amounts, especially over, you know, long distances. Um, It lets things, you know, kind of remain in a bank where they can be kept safe. Um, And so this, once again, you know, reduces a lot of uncertainty um, that gold still has because of its difficulty of of moving and storage uh storing mm-hmm. um but as you as you monopolize mints and you kind of decouple uh the the base money so to speak with um the the commodity from the sort of what people think is money and you issue these uh substitutes the state can start introducing you know things like legal tender laws um such that people have to use so not only are banknotes a thing that are offered because they they provide some value but you must use um those paper notes and as you do that you can start you know uh cartelizing the banking industry and um soon you know uh the money becomes completely decoupled uh, altogether, and that's that's the world we exist in now. Um, what we have and what we've had for the past fifty years is not something that would ever arise on the market. Um, it, it, it simply like it, it just it wouldn't. I mean, we can get into all of the uh, things, uh, the the theory behind that, but um, you know, I'd recommend Holzman's uh, you know Ethics of Money uh, production um, to to get into topics like that, but. Once you've done that, you have to convince people, oh, no, this is totally how money works. Mm. Trust me, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. A lot, of, a lot of great points there. Um, and, yeah, you mentioned theoretically Minger's, uh, what on the origins of money, I think, is his piece describing mm-hmm. how uh, money emerges 
naturally on the free market as an as an economic phenomenon, not a state dictate or decree. And then in these crypto assets, you have basically a copy and paste of Bitcoin's code in uh, to develop a closed network, some so something that's trying to provide a solution in either an a different market space or trying to compete directly with Bitcoin as money. And I just don't think that's going to work. I think money really is a winner take all market space. You know, when you consider that the value of money is its liquidity, is it, it's how many trading partners, how many people, how widely accepted it is hmm. uh, in this one definition of money, which again, there's a lot of definitions. Um, I think, I guess in a nutshell, you could say for the same economic reasons, we only have one analog gold. My thesis is that we end up, not my thesis, many Bitcoiners thesis, the Bitcoin maximalist thesis is that we end up with only one digital gold and that everything else is just noise, right? These are all, all these shit coins are, are analogous to intranets yep. and they're going to go the way of the dinosaur. Uh, and dino is actually a good analogy for them because uh, we describe a lot of these, this is the fundamental difference between Bitcoin and shitcoin. Bitcoin is decentralized. All shitcoins are dinos, decentralized in name only. Only, yeah, absolutely. So I think there may come a period, I don't know when, maybe 10 years from now, where the same way we look back on intranets today and say, can you believe people ever thought that was going to be a, a thing? And we laugh about it. Some people haven't even heard about it today. If I bring up the term intranet to someone in their 20s, they don't know what I'm talking about. Yep. I think the same sequence of events is going to play out related to Bitcoin that in maybe 10, 15, 20 years, we'll talk about shit coins and people will be like, what, what is that? <laughs> Never heard of that. It's really quite factual. Actually, if you understand how the in internet is constituted, that it is this stack of open source protocols. Yeah. You know, most of us are f familiar with HTTP. Yep. Um, most of us have probably heard of TCP IP. These are all just open for mediating the exchange of data without permission. That's all it is. You can build a website without permission. You can um, communicate with people without permission. It's this, this decentralized media paradigm effectively that the internet has ushered in. And if you understand that, right? So the Bitcoin, I'm sorry. So the internet has evolved organically in layers yeah. Uh, that you could almost consider Bitcoin to just be the latest evolutionary layer right on top of it. It's instead of being a, an open source protocol for mediating the exchange of data, the genius of Satoshi is that he has figured out a way to create one of these internet layers that is actually anchored into reality, anchored into energy, anchored into physical thermodynamic reality and such that it is capable of mediating the exchange of economic value. So in the same way we have the internet that lets us communicate without permission, um, you know, and obviously we're talking about the internet as a whole here. We're not talking yep. about an application, like you can get censored off of Twitter or Facebook or whatever. We're talking about the internet as a whole, like the entire protocol stack. Bitcoin sort of just slots in nicely right there on top and says, hey, well, we have permissionless communications. We have this permissionless media paradigm. Well, what's the most important form of media in the world? 
I would argue it's the medium of exchange yep. that we call money. Yep. Uh, I think it's the most, you know, clearly it's the most valuable market space in the world. It's a technology that every human being and civilized society has to use. It's a technology that almost every human being in civilized society does not seem to understand. Mm. And um, it's, it's incredible. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like a fusion, if you will, this, we have mathematics is one of our universal languages. It's given rise to this, uh, this incredible technology that we have today. This, what did Arthur Clark say that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yep. So all of these magical tools, like we're using one right now, I'm talking to you from across the world on a video call. Yeah. Um, all of this is born from that natural organic market process and, uh, and born from mathematics ultimately like it, math is the, a universal language. I think money is another, as I've described previously, we all need to use it. We think through it, we communicate through it. We have sayings about it. You know, don't tell me what you think. Show me what's in your portfolio. Put your money where your mouth is. Yep. Um, that that assertion was right on the money. You know, there's all these little um, aspects of our language that sort of betray how universal something like money is. And what has Bitcoin done? Well, it's it's fused them together. We fused mathematics and money into one network, one tool. Um, and it's fascinating in that we've, we've picked up, you could almost consider it like we've, we've gained all the best advantages that the internet has to offer. Kind of like this universal engine for permissionless exchange, right? Yep. I can send ideas and information anywhere in the world at the speed of light without asking anybody. And we've combined that with the economic properties of gold right? Something that is, uh, it's hard to come by. It, it requires a proof of work. It's difficult to counterfeit. Um, but the problem with gold, obviously, is that it was hard to move, hard to transport, hard to secure. But by, you know, the great word that Sailor has introduced to the world here, by dematerializing gold into the internet of money, you you get the and you discard the problems with both worlds. Because the problem with the internet is that when you send information, you're not actually sending it, right? You're just sending copies all over yep. the place. Well, yep. if you just copy money, that doesn't work. It, yep. it dilutes, it inflates, it, it fails. Uh, the advantage of gold is that you can't double spend it or inflate it or counterfeit it. That's great. The problem with gold is it's hard to move. You can't move it or move it around the world like you can information. And then poof, what do we get? Bitcoin. Can't print it. You can't counterfeit it rooted in reality, but it's pure, purely dematerialized. It's pure digital information. You can move it at the speed of light. You can carry it in your brain. You can carry it in hardware and software. You can carry it in a circle of trust, any information bearing medium. So it's this, it's just a radical, really radical idea. And I think that's why like with the emergence of the internet, people used to call it the information superhighway, you know, or it's like a library on, on a keyboard, things like this. We, we use these 
strange analogies in an attempt to describe a tool that just does not fit our prior worldview. Mm. And that to me indicates how paradigmatic Bitcoin is. Like it's an entirely new thing. So what do we do? We can't describe the thing. So we start to analogize it to all these older things that we're familiar with. It's digital gold. It's the internet of money. It's, uh, you know, I, I go way back and I call it inviolable property, right? We've been talking about inviolable private property since at least the year 1215 when King John signed the Magna Carta. Well, I think Bitcoin is the closest instantiation of that principle that we've ever had. See, that's mind blowing. Um, that's just mind blowing. It's mind blowing. <laughs> Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. You talked a little bit about the origins of money as well. So I'll, I'll read an excerpt about that. You've got a very interesting description here. Um, you write that money is the commonly used medium of exchange and it has value to us because it provides this function. We value money like other goods because of what it can do for us. But it is not the bills and coins themselves that provide us with value, but the expectation that we can use them to buy what we want. This means money works because we recognize it as such and therefore accept it in exchange. Money has purchasing power. It is the belief that money can buy goods that makes it valuable. If we believed that we would not be able to use money to buy goods, perhaps we believe others will not accept it, then we too would not accept it. This means money is money because people consider it to be money. In this sense, money is largely a self-reinforcing social institution. We all have experience using it and we thus and thus have some idea of what it means for something to be money. But this does not explain what money is or why it is or how it came to be. So this uh, interesting description I was referring to is 
money is largely a self-reinforcing social institution. Are you alluding to kind of like the game theoretic selection process that is money? I mean, that's at least the way I've come to view it is like many other things in the economic domain, we try different tools to see which tool is the best thing for the job. And when it comes to money, you know, it's valued on its liquidity and its network effects. We kind of drilled down to or zeroed in on gold over time as, as one of the best monies. But is that what you're referring to in that, um, that line self-reinforcing social institution? Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's be- when, when we already have money, it will continue to be money for as long as people consider it to be money, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's a it's really a huge problem in theoretically that how come that people in general ex- accept something for buying and selling that they don't want and that they might have zero use for, and whether that is gold or if it's dollars or whatever it might be, I mean they accept it only because they believe that well. This is what we trade for, and I can always use dollars to buy other stuff, right? So there's a trust involved in, in, in an expectation that because others will use dollars, I can accept dollars indirectly then, because so I can work for someone and get these pieces of paper that I can't really do anything with themselves, right? But I can still accept to work for these pieces of paper because I believe that I can use this piece of paper to buy other stuff that I actually want, right? So it, it sort of separates my supply to the market from my demand from the market. Mm. But in order to get there, I mean, how do you get from just trading things for things um, in barter trade to everybody trading their things and basically selling everything they produce for this one thing that they don't want and then buying other things with it? And that's something that it, economists had sort of a problem with figuring out until Carl Menger had wrote an essay on it back in the 1890s, where he said, well, barter has very strict limitations. So yes, I could trade my glass of water for the potato chips, but I couldn't trade for a lot of other things because I need to find someone who wants what I have and offers what I want and we need to agree on a on an exchange ratio as well. So there's so many trades that I would want to make, but I can't because they don't want what I have. But then I would figure out that, well, this guy who wants has something that I really, really value highly, he doesn't want what I have, but my neighbor produces something that I think that he would want more. So I'll just trade my stuff for whatever the neighbor has to offer that I don't want or I don't need, or maybe I'm allergic to this stuff or whatever. But I think that it's indirectly it will help to facilitate the trade to get what I actually want. Mm-hmm. Now, when people start doing this, they will, of course, learn from each other and they will start to trade and sell their stuff for what they think is the more saleable good. And there are, of course, many different goods to choose from. So they will step-by-step uh, step figure out that, well, wait a minute, the, those guys over there, they traded for eggs and people over here, they traded for butter and people over there, they traded for these seashells. And then you will sort of join them and say, well, I'll trade my stuff for seashells too. That means I can trade with these guys because they already did that. So I, I sort of use that information. And then eventually it means that we will have just a few goods that everybody's selling their stuff for because they recognize that, well, this is what people are using. So that facilitates a lot of trades for me. 
and eventually you would probably have one or two like gold and silver uh, that most people recognize. And, and then it has become this institution that people just go, well, that's money. And, and money is the, the commonly used medium of exchange, right? It's, it's that one good that everybody values, not for being the good itself, but because you can use it for its purchasing power. So you can use it to get what you actually want. And the way I see it is that money, now that we have this in, invention, we all take it for granted. And money is all over the place. The problem is that that if you start tampering with the money, so people don't really trust it anymore, they will shy away from using it. And they might use something else, of course, because the invention is still there. The knowledge of what the money is is still there. But there, there's some inertia, of course. But eventually, if the dollar would lose too much of its purchasing power every year, people will go for, go for something else. They would choose maybe a different state currency like the euro, or they would choose Bitcoin, or they would invest in gold coins or something like that that would retain its value, right? So they would not use dollars, which means the dollars would be accepted by fewer and fewer people. So its purchasing power would fall and fall and fall. And we see that uh, during hyperinflation times, for instance, mm -hmm. right? when people just try to get rid of the money as fast as they can, because the money doesn't doesn't retain any value hmm. and no one wants to accept them either because but they just want goods instead buy whatever the heck you can because that thing will at least have some value in the future so so they're turning their backs on on that money but as long as we use a money and as long as we recognize that well this is money it's sort of uh, reinforcing itself because we're that means that we're demanding it and we're changing, we're exchanging our goods for that thing. So as long as we use do dollars, the dollar will be a money. But when people sort of collectively, all of the country, or at least a, a big chunk of it, uh, will stop using dollars, then the dollars will, will be completely worthless. They, 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 don't, they don't function as money anymore. And then we will use something else. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm Kind of back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about these imaginary structures that humans create. And it seems like money is sort of one that just emerges naturally, right? Anywhere that we're we're trading, whatever gets promoted to the most saleable or exchangeable or liquid asset just kind of emerges as money. Um, it's fascinating. And you have another great excerpt here about this that I'll read. You wrote that a decree does not create money. It creates only an obligation, which is limited by the extent of its enforcement. However, it is fully conceivable that a government can, bit by bit, take over and monopolize an already existing money, which we have seen happen. <clears throat> Most currencies today are government monopoly monies, but that is not how money was invented or accepted as a medium of exchange. It is only how it ended up. The economic function of money cannot simply be created from the top down. So there's this strange element. Again, we needed consent for money to emerge, like the natural market process. You can't decree that into existence. But once it does exist, a government can come in by decree and, to your point, bit by bit, right? You can't just declare gold belongs to the U.S. government or something like that, but you can peg the dollar to gold and over time run a fractional reserve and then, you know, suspend gold redeemability and do all these things. So it's, um, 
very fascinating. Again, this whole, and then, you know, it separates too, because once this is where the definition of money is strange, because we say it's a widely accepted medium of exchange, but I guess there, there's a lot of argument to be made that something like gold is still money in a geopolitical sense, but it's not widely accepted as a medium of exchange. So I've always considered that layer one, whether it's gold or something like Bitcoin to be more money like, and then the application we put on it, currency is what actually functions as a universal medium of exchange. So how do you think, think about that? Is there some ambiguity perhaps in that term money? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, it's not exact. I mean, it's, if it is commonly used, that means that other things are used too. Yeah. And and what does it mean to be commonly used? How widely does it have to be used in order to be a money? Right. And do are we talking about globally? Are we talking about within a country? Are we talking about within a state or in in my county? Or what what is what is money? Right? Because you would do to find different counties or different neighborhoods where they use other things as money because they just agree on it. So I, I think it it sort of is from a a market perspective. That, that certain things are commonly used for exchanges within a group of people or a group of actors. And it doesn't have to be sort of in a, in a territorial sense. They don't have to live together or be adjacent to each other. They could be all over the world, but they have a sort of a network where they rely on this one thing. Uh, so it could be one of those uh, currencies or credits within a computer game that people who use that computer game, they use that that thing as money at least in that setting, right? Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, in, in geopolitical sense, gold is money. Well, gold is also money between central banks. Mm -hmm. Central banks, they tend to buy and sell a whole lot of gold. At the same time, of course, they tell us that, no, 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 gold is not money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to them, it is, obviously, right? So <laughs> there's something weird going on here. So it, it can be, and, and at the same time, not, at, uh, simply because it, it's in different situations and for different people. But it... It, it it I think it, money used to be so much easier to understand when I mean we were basically on a global uh, gold standard for a while, mm -hmm. and well I mean it's it's the weight in gold if you call them francs or Deutschmarks or whatever it doesn't really matter it was still a weight yeah. of that precious metal and that was it so you had a fixed exchange rate between currencies because they were just different rates or different the weights of of gold nothing else mm -hmm. and and of course that's a very stable currency that it will always be the same yes there is more gold being found and, and mined and things like that but it's a very slow process um and it costs a lot to dig it out of the earth and and things like that so it's it's not like they can just inflate it completely uh, overnight it's going to take a while and then they have to invest a lot of resources into producing it too so it's sort of uh it's 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 self-balancing in a sense, right? There's there are no shocks really, even though there there have been shocks in gold too, right? right. So, when the Span the Spaniard imported a lot of gold from South America when they colonized South America, they experienced hyperinflation too, mm -hmm. or at least high degrees of inflation in gold because they came with big ships full of gold, and everybody was whoa we're rich and they started buying stuff and then of course prices soared mm -hmm. because there was so much money bidding for the same number of goods. Mm 